The very first person I ever invested in was Sam Altman. And he was 19 years old. He was a sophomore. And I just thought, um, what an amazing, astounding idea you have. However you start your career, you want to figure out what is the special edge that you have? What is the thing that you can do that perhaps others can do not as well as you can? People who are really there for you when times are tough are your real friends. Hi, everyone. I'm Taiki, and you're listening to New to Venture. It's the show that uncovers the secret world of venture capital, from the multi-billion dollar exits to the biggest company blow-ups. If you don't know that much about venture capital, you've come to the right place. I am super excited for today's episode because the one and only Patrick Chung has joined us on the show. Patrick's background is absolutely nuts, so bear with me here as I read off some of his amazing accomplishments. Patrick got his undergrad degree from Harvard studying environmental science, and then later got a master's of science from uh, Oxford University, then went back to Cambridge to get a joint JD MBA from Harvard Business School and Harvard Law. And we're just getting started here. Patrick spent a few years at McKinsey, one of the top consulting firms where he specialized in hardware, software, and service companies, then later joined Zephyr, an internet services company where he helped grow their annual revenue to over $100 million. He moved to New Enterprise Associates, or NEA, one of the best of the best when it comes to VC firms, where he rose the ranks to become the youngest partner elected after just three years, leading the seed and consumer practices. Here, he led investments in some of the biggest names in technology, like Plaid and 23andMe. He then spun off to create his own VC fund in 2012 called X-Fund, where he's been investing in the most promising startups of this generation. And he shares the best last name. Chung's represent. I had to leave a few things out here, so I hope this intro does him justice. I'm so excited to welcome to the show one of the staples in the venture ecosystem and one of the nicest VCs that I know, Patrick Chung. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, my brother Chung. <laughs> it's such an honor to have you. Uh, but before we dive into startups in VC, I just wanted to talk about the time that we met in person at Harvard. So I was an ex-fund fellow for a little bit under undergrad, and uh, we had a fellows meeting, for those who don't know, at Harvard's campus. And obviously, I was blown away by your knowledge and kindness. But what surprised me the most here was the sheer number of people on campus that recognized you and said hi. So you were literally a celebrity out there. So afterward, I was thinking to myself, man, I, I want to be like that. So I got to ask, how did you grow such a strong presence at Harvard? Oh, gosh. Um, well, first, that's really kind of you to say. I don't think that's exactly true. But, uh, but <laughs> you know, I did spend a great deal of time on the campus, uh, you know, as a student, as you point out. Um, multiple times as a student, and then uh, I worked in the area, um, and and of course we have an office um, in Cambridge, and so uh, I'm back all the time, and I really love it. So I think if you really love something and you're around it all the time, I think you just become part of a community, and that's what's so nice about um, you know that campus, but also college campuses in general. One hundred percent, staying along the lines of these fun stories. I read somewhere a while back on Twitter that you had some interactions with royalty. And uh, I just have to ask, what's that all about? Well, what royalty, first of all? I was just doing some research for the episode and it was super, super fun doing research on you especially. But 
let's see here. So there's this this tweet here that you oh, reposted, I... and okay. um, and it said Anne Patrick Chung's adventures with royalty, and so. I just I had uh, to ask. Yeah. And and, yes. and are you are you um clarifying because you've had multiple interactions with royalty? <laughs> is, that, is that why you're clarifying? Okay. I I will I I will tell you. Let me see if I can. Can I share my screen with you too? Boom. Do you see that? No way. Oh my okay. gosh! Whoa. The very lovely uh, photo you shared before on the screen, um, is actually the 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 master of uh, my old Oxford College. Her name is Valerie Amos, um, and she's a baroness. Um, but in the British, you know, thing, she's an aristocrat, but not royalty. And so Prince William is royalty. And and I did get the chance to uh, meet him. I feel like this is the definition of high class in many ways. It's both high class in a kind of literal, like classist type of way, because he's the, the the Prince of Wales, but also so classy. And so this was in Los Angeles at the home of the, I don't know if she's still there, but at the then uh, Consul General of the United Kingdom in Los Angeles. He was this amazing diplomat and to enter this garden party. And at this garden party, by the way, was like David Beckham, Stephen Fry, like every life, like, you know, like huge British, like LA superstar was there. And, um, and you had to check your phone, uh, at the door. This is very embarrassing to admit, but I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to check my phone at the door. I was going there with a friend of mine named Andrew. We walked in and I had to go through a metal detector and I just thought, okay, it, it'll catch me and I'll just surrender the phone if, if, if for when that happens, and I walked the metal detector and actually nothing happened. So. And in part because Andrew's then girlfriend was a huge royalist and she was so, so interested. It, she wanted to like see photos and, and we tried to get her a ticket, but we were unable to do so. And as we were driving away to go to this event, I, I just remember the kind of the sadness on her face. And she was like, oh, I can't believe you're going. Because she, she studied, she has a PhD. She studied like royal history. She was a super fan. And I was like, I'm going to get a photo of your boyfriend and the and the prince and so we go in and everything is everything is great so so the way these things are structured there are these cocktail tables and um people are lined up around their cocktail table and consul general approaches you and says what is your name please and what do you do and you tell her and then she's two places ahead of the prince she then remembers two people's biographies and then she whispers to the prince, this is, you know, this is Taiki. He is a student at, you know, Northeastern. And, blah, blah. and then Prince William approaches you and says, Taiki, very good to meet you. And you have a little chat. And so I, we introduce ourselves. And so I'm having a chat with Prince William. And I tell Prince William, you know, we are such great fans of yours, uh, your royal highness. May we have a photograph with you? He says, of course. And you can see the, the consul general's ear perk up. And she's like, what? And she like turns back <laughs> and it's like, there are no phones allowed. And so I, I hand my phone to Andrew, my friend, and Andrew takes the photo that you see here. And then the consul general noticing that something horribly wrong has gone on, something terrible, like we violated, hacky American tourists have violated these rules. 
she gently slips in and is so skilled. I will never forget this. She was so skilled. I forgot what she did, but she made it such that she inserted her body in a certain position relative to us. She made it so easy for William to just simply not be rude and simply slip away without ha having that second photo with Andrew. But as William is being led away, William pauses the consul general and says, hold on one sec. And then William comes back and takes the photo with Andrew, my friend. And it was because the prince had made a promise. I said, "Could you, would, would it be okay if we took a photo with you? And he said, yes. And so even though we were in violation of all the rules, even though we were the tacky American tourists who were like, you know, snapping shots, he still kept his word. And I just thought it was the most classy thing. It was like such a non-intuitively correct decision for him to have given his word and then for him to have kept his word. And of course, we've never been invited back. <laughs> but it really did teach the lesson in what is meant by high class. So I believe that the United Kingdom will be in very good hands when William sends the throne. Wow. What an amazing story, Patrick. You're, you're the <laughs> Oh, I love that. Wait, so how did you get an invite to this, this party in the first place? I think uh, William and Kate had just been married or engaged, and they were on a tour of the United States promoting kind of British trade interests. And so uh, one of the... And they had a giant like tech right. conference in LA where they did like tech and entertainment. And, and so we were invited that way. Oh, one of these days, I'd love to be in a room similar like, like that. Um, I need like a couple more decades, <laughs> but I'll get there. I will get there. I don't even know where I want to take that story, but let's feel back to startups in BC a little bit. And I'd love to hear about your origin stories how you've worked to become the GP at X Fund to even be in a room with all those amazing people and royalty. So just listing off some of those accomplishments in that introduction, obviously super, super impressive stuff. And in the intro, I had mentioned that you had gotten that combined JD and MBA from Harvard. Was the original plan to be a lawyer or like legal counsel for a company? No, no, I never wanted to become a lawyer, although I really enjoyed studying law. After I graduated from a college, I went to grad school in England um, to study environmental science, and then I went to McKinsey as a consultant. Um, and then out of McKinsey, I had applied to, um, out of college, I had applied to law school and been admitted. And I did that as a kind of really an unthinking default. It, you know, I was pre-med, law school seemed respectable. I enjoyed words, you know, I wrote for this, uh, this school newspaper, et cetera. And so, um, I just thought, okay, well, law school seems like, again, an unthinking default. And so I applied to law school, I got in. And then when I went to grad school and when I would work for McKinsey, I, um, I just kept deferring it. And then at McKinsey, I applied to a uh, business school, uh, and, and also got into that. And then, then at Harvard, you have to apply to, you get into both schools and you have to apply to the joint program which I did. Um, and so that's how I ended up there. Um, and I'd never wanted to become a lawyer, but I ended up really, really enjoying law school a lot. Um, it was, I felt like it was a really nice contrast because business school, as you may know, is not 
terribly intellectual. Um, and law school was really, you know, very much the opposite. Some, some nights, you know, I had to read like 600 pages. Um, and, and I liked it so much. I, uh, I got onto the Harvard Law Review and became editor of the Harvard Law Review. You know, I just really, really loved it. Um, but I didn't know any happy lawyers. Everyone who I'd known actually practiced law really, really kind of hated it. And the one summer I spent in a law firm uh, did not convince me otherwise. So I never practiced law. But I, I did I did take two bar exams. Wow, yeah, because you're, I think you're registered in Massachusetts and New York, right? Yeah. It's sad to hear that many lawyers that you had worked with didn't seem so happy, but it seems like you found passion in venture capital, which is even better. So I'd love to hear the thought process that was behind joining McKinsey, leaving to go get the MBA and JD. What was the pivot into venture capital like? Why didn't you go back into McKinsey, which is also an amazing organization to work for? It was amazing. Um, I think this is very true of college students today. To get to a good college, you have to have jumped through all kinds of little hoops. You have to have climbed. Every time a, a rung was placed before you on the ladder, you were like, Ugh. And so a lot of people, I think, just carry that attitude into their postgraduate graduate careers. And so I think I was really stuck in that as well, which is that law school was this unthinking default. McKinsey was also this unthinking default. It was yet another wrong. It seemed prestigious. It was like a lot of people wanted it. And you, really knowing what it was, you kind of tried to jump through that hoop or try to like climb that rung of that ladder. That is a really bad, <laughs> bad way to make decisions, I think. And I just got lucky. So at McKinsey, one thing that I think is really good about it is it allows you to kind of really explore what is business. So I worked for, you know, consumer companies and tech companies and financial institutions. And from among them, like when you're an undergrad, you're just like, I don't know what a financial institution is. I don't know what a strategy is versus marketing versus operations. So it taught you all of those things and allowed you to like kind of sample from a larger universe of here's the world of business writ large and what parts of it really interest you. Um, and so I, I found myself really very much interested in technology. And so the tech cases that I worked on at McKinsey were kind of the, the things that fascinated me most. And so fast forward, when I graduated from grad school, or I mean, before I graduated from grad school, when I was at McKinsey, my friend who went to high school with me, who went to college with me, and who actually recruited me to McKinsey, I met, I just limply bumped into him in a parking lot in Cambridge. And he was like, let's go start an internet company together. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that. I, I. I got into the JD MBA. I am totally going. And so just come for the summer. And so I was like, okay, fine. So I quit McKinsey early, went to join him for the summer. And it was the most amazing thing. I mean, this was a startup. There were like people who are all our age. Um, you know, it was just such an amazing, amazing and amazingly fun time. And in the fall, after that summer in the startup, uh, when I had to decide whether to go back, I decided, no, I would not go back and I would just continue to defer working at this startup, which we sold for another year and a half. Um, and we sold it in the end. And then I, and then I returned to grad school and then coming out of grad school, out of JDMBA, I thought, how do I get back into that world of startups? I did not know really what venture capital was. I just remember those like mean voices at the end of the line, yelling at us at the end of our, our company's life. And I kind of explored it. And so I was, again, very fortunate to 
uh, come into contact with the people at NEA. I had never really wanted to move to California. I thought I'd live out the rest of my days on the East Coast, which was the real world. And, uh, and I met these people, my what would be my future partners at NEA, and they were just some of the nicest, most accomplished people I'd ever met. Mm. Um, and so I kind of swallowed hard, packed up all my things, moved to California, uh, thought it would be two or three years, then I'd come back to the real world, the East Coast. But uh, that was uh, like over a decade ago. What did you do specifically at the startup? Were you essentially a co-founder or were you like a COO type of role? Yeah, I was part of the group there. Um, you know, it was really... It was really an amazing time. I mean, we we grew to almost a thousand people, six international offices, uh, six offices. Sorry, not some of which were international. Um, and you know, it was just an amazing time. I mean, I was like, you know, I had just I'd been at the bottom of the barrel at McKinsey, and all of a sudden I was leading these big teams and doing these projects, and it was just a kind of delving into the deep end of the pool. Did you find that your experiences studying environmental science at Harvard or like the time that you were at McKinsey to be helpful in building a company or was everything like learning on the fly? It was a lot of learning on the fly, but I think McKinsey did at least two things for me. Number one is it just gave me a kind of a grounding in the language of business. Like before McKinsey, I would not have known the difference between what is a billion dollar company? What is a hundred million dollar company? What is a $10 million company? I, I understand like those numbers and like that's 10 to the ninth and 10 to the eighth and but i didn't really get how big or small these things were it kind of grounded you in the kind of the language of business and it also uh number two uh gave you a very good mental model for how these large companies successful large companies that can afford to hire mckinsey how they are structured and so our startups often aspire to be as big as you know, the Fortune 500 companies that McKinsey eventually works for. Um, and it gave you a really good mental model of, aha, that is how these things are structured. That's how these things are run. And so how do we get from here where it's like a ragtag little group to there, like Apple, you know, um, you know, there's, you can kind of, if you know where you're trying to get to, then you can, you know, set your sights in a more directive way, I think. Yeah, I I really relate to that. Um, all my work experiences so far, although internships have been at all the different stages and life cycles of a company. So I first was a co-founder at this like med tech or a med device company that ended up blowing up. But um, I was first a founder and then I worked at, you know, a, a, a mid-stage, almost growth stage biotech startup. And I did some consulting for a little bit, interacting with these four different companies, companies that wanted to go public. And then uh, venture capital at the Series A level, I, I had two internships there. And so seeing how all the different moving pieces and maturity levels of companies, just see, having all those interactions really adds a lot of context. I want to focus in, I want to dial in to when you first joined NEA, right? You were saying how at the time you had viewed VCs as these big bad guys that'll come in and, and maybe destroy the company to the end of the stages by selling off all their equity. So what was the moment where you had fallen in love with venture? Um, almost, almost honestly from the very start, because it is such a privilege to do this job, especially around here where I live in Silicon Valley. I mean, you're roving through 
what has always been and continues to be the center of startups and technology, meeting some of the most interesting people who've come from all over the world to be here just to do this one thing, trying to understand what they're doing and trying to see if you can help them. And so that is such a, I mean, that's such an amazing job because it's highly variable. Uh, day by day, you are meeting all new people most of the time. Uh, day by day, some of the, the, these people are some of the most intelligent, hardworking people in the world um, because they've made it here. They've come here. Um, and then you're trying to grapple with and understand what they're building, which is almost always novel and which has never been seen before. Um, and there's just a type of possibility that is so open um, that it really is is remarkable. I mean, the very first uh, person I ever invested in was Sam Altman, uh, who is yeah, who is currently the uh, uh, OpenAI CEO. Um, I was I had been in the job for less than a year, and I had um, uh, we had struck a partnership. NEA and Stanford to sponsor this organization called Basis, which is actually the country's largest student-run entrepreneurship organization. And Sam and two of his classmates had entered the business plan competition there. And so I met Sam. Uh, he had this cool idea for a location-based social network, a mobile network called Looped. Um, it went through various names, but it eventually was named Looped. And, um, and he was 19 years old. He was a sophomore. And I just thought, um, what an amazing, astounding idea you have. You have a cell phone. This was before even the iPhone and, and widespread location availability on, on cell phones. And he wanted to put location on the phone and be able to see where all his friends were. Um, because the most commonly asked question on a cell phone back then was, where are you? Um, and so we had this amazing idea. Um, however, in those days, it required a carrier deal. So it required Sprint or AT or Verizon to allow this thing to happen. And so before we even made a single wired a, a dollar to that account, Sam and I actually flew to Kansas City where I had known the CTO of Sprint. And we met with the CTO of Sprint. Sprint became our very first carrier deal. And based on that, we gave Sam his very first term sheet. Uh, he took a leave of absence from Stanford and he never returned. Um, and then I proceeded to serve on Sam's board for over seven years, almost eight years until we sold the company. And so it was just that type of kind of magical time in Silicon Valley where you had, and you still have, um, you know, really young people with ideas that solve real problems in their lives saying, how can I actually take action and, and build something, um, that's meaningful to me and to, to my cohort. That's an amazing story. And there's so many different ways that I want to take it. For starters, I wanted to touch upon what got you falling in love with venture. And it seems like it was the social and intellectual stimulation that venture brings. And it's really a unique blend that I've never seen with any other job. And so I wanted to echo that sort of sentiment. I feel the same way about it. I, I want to talk more about this first deal that you had as an investor with Sam Altman. Besides an amazing idea, what is it that you saw in Sam that made you feel comfortable giving him that that money, that first check? If you've ever met him, you know, he has the real gift of looking very young. He was 19. He looked 12. Um, 38 now, and he still looks 12. 
um, which is the real, the real like I want to try to bottle that that everlasting youth. Um, however, when he opens his mouth, you realize, oh my goodness, this is not a twenty year old. This is not a twelve year old. I'll never forget. We entered the CEO of Sprint's office on this trip that we took together. I had told the CTO, "Hey, I'm going to bring you this amazing founder. I think you you should hear what he has to say because this could be something really interesting." And so, in Kansas City, where Sprint is headquartered, we entered this ginormous, like wall-to-wall -wall glass office. And the CTO walks in, and he looks at me, and he looks at Sam, and he just assumes I think that Sam is like my assistant or something. He's, he's like, he's like, "Where's the founder?" And I'm like, "Oh, may I introduce uh, Sam?" And, and he just looked. I remember him looking at Sam and then looking at me and then thinking, "Why are you wasting my time? Who is the who is the child?" And as soon as Sam opened his mouth and started pitching the concept, you could see his expression change. And he was like, ah, I see. And that was our first deal. Similarly, after we got that deal, I took Sam as my, as my very first deal at NEA. Um, you know, cause I had been newly hired. There was a lot of, I was very excited to be there. They were very excited to have me. And I was like, I have this amazing founder I want to bring to you guys and get the votes on so we can like, I could do my first deal. I was so excited. And the, the NEA partnership has this gigantic table in Menlo park, uh, the table like long and very intimidating. And then through video conference, we had a video conference with our East coast office and they have a very long table as well. So uh, all of these, it was like the, the like, much larger. And so Sam and I walk in and again, all of my partners are looking at him. And then looking at me and thinking, oh my God, we made a huge mistake. Who is this child you're bringing into the into our office? And they were like, oh God, this is going to be painful. But then again, you know, Sam opens his mouth and he has the gift of a really deep, resonant voice. You know, he looks young, but he sounds old. He sounds wise. And he's he was able to to convince everyone this is I'm serious and this is a serious thing and we wrote him his first check and so that's how the whole adventure began oh I love that I absolutely love that and so I mentioned earlier that you were one of the I think the youngest partner elected at NEA and I'm sure the deal with Sam Altman was helpful for that I have to ask as a young VC What's the secret sauce? How are you able to climb the ranks so quickly and make a strong name for yourself at the NEA practice? I, I think I was, again, very fortunate. Um, you know, when I started at NEA, um, we had a partner named Stuart Alsop, who was the head of our consumer practice. And, um, and shortly after I arrived at NEA, he actually left the firm to start his own firm. And so at a very kind of young age in my tenure there, um, I was able to become the head of the consumer practice. Uh, in part, I think it's it was because, you know, NEA until that moment in history had really made its its reputation, its name, investing in some of the very best software companies. Scott Sentinel, the current managing general partner, was an investor in Salesforce.com, which really started the whole software as a service um, uh, thing. You know, Dick Kramnick, the uh, founder of NEA was an investor in 3Com, which set the kind of the infrastructure of the internet. And, and when I first joined, it was kind of the dawn of social media. And so because I was a, you know, relatively young 
person who had just, you know, just simply joined out of school, um, I was on social media. Um, and all of the social media uh, founders would relate to me, you know, kind of in a closer way because I, closer to them. And so um, that was, I think, wherever you work, whatever, however you start your career, you want to figure out what is the special edge that you have? What is the thing that you can do that perhaps others can do not as well as you can? Um, and really kind of hit your differentiation. Um, and for me, just again, largely as a stroke of luck, I happened to join at a time and be part of a generation that was kind of rising and was able to relate to that generation of, of, of founders. You know, Sam has been such a great experience uh, as a first, uh, as a first investor for me, but also he, he did something really remarkable, which was, um, in those days, even though I had found Sam and, and led that first investment. There was a rule that only partners could serve on people's boards and finding another partner to serve on Sam's board. And Sam, to his great credit, said, no, 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 I don't want that older partner. I would like Pat to serve on my board. And the partnership said, well, associates do not serve on boards. And Sam said, well, I just, that's what I, I would like. And if you guys want to make the investment, he, he'll be on my board. And so that's so I, I think I might have been the first associate to serve on a board on behalf of NEA. Um, and it was because of that real connection of a person who understands the founder and understands what they're doing is going to increase that company's chances of success more than someone who doesn't. You know, equally, I would not serve on a board of a semiconductor company. We have a, one partner at NEA named Forrest Basket, who was a professor of computer science and electrical engineering at Stanford, who was served for the CTO of Silicon Graphics. Like, you know, Forrest, Professor Forrest should serve on a semiconductor board. You have to figure out what your differentiation is and really hit on that. You really hit the nail on the head here. And that's something that I still to this day deeply struggle with is as someone who is like fresh out of college, it's hard to really understand what your expertise is because you feel like a novice about everything. So that's kind of the like is, Heike, you're not a novice. Like if you wanted to like your 40 year old, 50 year old, 60 year old partners in a venture firm, they're not on TikTok. Are you on TikTok? I am on TikTok. <laughs> that's you true. Yeah. Like, you understand something about current tech, current media, current modes of interaction that they really do not understand. Um, you know, when you say things like, where do you get most of your news from? Oh, I get my, most of my news from TikTok. Like they don't, that, that sentence, they, they do not innately understand. They, they're like, what do you mean? TikTok is not the New York Times. TikTok, BBC, what do you mean you get your news on TikTok? But when you say that for you, it's very natural. That naturalness is your edge. Oh, I love that. And that actually reminds me of the time I was talking to my parents about how TikTok is on on trend to beat out Google as a search engine, right? Like people just like use TikTok as access to information yeah. now. And my parents like couldn't believe that. They couldn't really understand Google for that matter. Like, they, they were still confused on like how Google fully okay. works and they don't, they don't use it super right. fluently. But um, when I was explaining that to them, you're right. They had no understanding of it because it's just not part of their generation. So I definitely have to capitalize on that. And part of this whole podcast, New to Venture, was me realizing that my unique perspective could be that 
I am someone with a fresh set of eyes, right? With a, that hasn't been in venture for 20 plus years. And so my mind's very malleable and open to all the newer trends that are currently happening. I, uh, I, really, I thank you for that. I, I actually have a lot to think about now in terms of where I want to continue my path as an investor. I, I want to talk about the beginnings and origins of X Fund. So it seems like you had a great time at NEA. You learned a lot. We're on some great deals, led a few. You led the whole entire consumer investing practice. Why did you decide that starting your own thing with X Fund was your next career move? So we had a really um, interesting opportunity in 2011 uh, because Harvard University had a department of engineering that it had decided to convert into a full-fledged school of engineering with its own dean, with its own campus. And I had met the, uh, the then dean of this new school. And the dean, she had gone to MIT she, as an undergrad, uh, grad student, PhD. And her contention was that for all of MIT's technical innovation, there hadn't been a commercial innovation around some of the things that were being spun out of MIT. And she was thinking hard, I think, about it's quite a challenge to start a new engineering school in the 21st century and to start it down the road from one of the finest engineering schools on earth, MIT. Not to mention how would you position yourself against Stanford and Caltech and you know, Carnegie Mellon and everyone else. And so there were several kind of differentiators that I think she wanted to install. And one of them was, can we make entrepreneurship at the, at the heart of this new school? And so um, we chatted with her and worked with her for almost two years, at the end of which we actually struck an agreement with university to, to establish a venture capital firm alongside this new engineering school called XFund. And the, the venture firm um, would be designed specifically to help draw talent into this new ecosystem at Harvard. Um, and so that's why, you know, we had assumed that in starting a venture firm in partnership with the university that we would just simply be backing Harvard people. But she said, no, 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 no. I want to back everyone regardless where they come from and just draw talent into this new ecosystem that we're creating. And so that was you know, a, a really counterintuitive move at the beginning, but it has turned out to be a spectacular thing, I think, for both the, the fund and for the school. And so we've started this this venture firm, which is specifically designed to back these people from all from all schools. But back to kind of our earlier point, so often you have some of the very best and brightest to attend some of these universities. And when they graduate, they face a non-choice. They're going to get offers from Google and Goldman and grad school. And then if they want to start a company, they're like, I have this like very concrete offer letter from all these default, like I was talking about how I fell prey to the unthinking defaults. You've got these things that, oh, everyone does. So why don't I do as well? But then if you ever harbored an interest to start a company, you face a non-choice. I've got a Google offer letter, which is firm and concrete, or I start this company, starve, eat ramen for five years, you know, it's going to happen. Like it's not a, that's not a choice, real choice. And so part of our mission at X fund is for those students, uh, that subset of our population who have a true interest in starting a company, we will meet them as, as first years or sophomores or juniors or graduating seniors, and we will help them build 
their business to the point where when they graduate, it's so real. And by the way, it could also be attached to funding from us or funding from someone we help them to get funding from where it's so real. You have a signed offer letter from Google and you have a signed term sheet from X fund or firm. And there you, you still may decide to go to Google, but at least it will be a real choice. And our, our mission, our double bottom line mission is yes, to be a, a, a regular for-profit venture firm, but also to have an educative function uh, and I, I think a freeing function for that subset of the populace to give them the actual choice so that, that if they were destined to become a founder, that they actually feel like they can, they can really do it. And so that is the mission of X fund. And for the last 10 years, uh, we've worked very, very hard to execute on that mission, um, under the belief that for every Bill Gates, every Mark Zuckerberg that has come off that campus and other campuses, that there have been dozens of other founders would have been better, just as good as them. But when they graduated, they didn't feel like they had the choice. You know, Bill Gates was, um, a quite wealthy family. His father ran, you know, was a pretty well-known lawyer in the Seattle area. Mark Zuckerberg's family ran a thriving medical practice in an expensive suburb of New York City. Um, these were people who felt like they, they could afford to take the risk. Everyone like that, we want to kind of level the playing field so that they feel like they can also take that risk with our, with our support or with someone else's support. I can feel the genuine passion that you have explaining that story and your mission, and it's absolutely infectious. So thank you so much for sharing that. Once again, going back to the inception and origin of X Fund, how did you and Brandon meet? Ah, so Brandon and I met um, because, and I think it was, uh, gosh, when Brandon was a sophomore, I think. Yeah, that's right. In 2005, we actually struck one of the very first partnerships uh, between a venture firm and a university. So Brandon was one of the student leaders of Stanford Basis. Uh, is the is called Business Association of Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. It's the largest student-run entrepreneurship organization in the country. And Brandon approached me when I was at NEA and said, hey, would you like to strike a partnership together? So we actually ended up sponsoring Basis. And that through that sponsorship, by the way, is how I became the judge at the business plan competition that Sam Altman had um, had entered. And so Brandon and I actually struck one of the very first, I think, partnerships between a venture firm and a university. And so years later, um, we would be doing the same thing um, together at X Fund. And so Brandon and I uh, stayed in touch after throughout his college career. After he graduated from Stanford as an undergrad, I was an advisor to the company that he started, which uh, helped uh, high school students apply to universities. So again, in this kind of university themed. Um, and then we, uh, for many years, were co-investors. He went, joined DFJ, the venture capital firm, and I was at NEA. So we had many co-investments together. We actually uh, uh, served on a couple of boards together. Um, and then uh, years later, he he joined X Fund. So it's so so I've known Brandon for, gosh, almost 15 years now, and it's been. Uh, a spectacular partnership that began in the same way that it continues today with this real nexus between universities and venture capital. I love that, Patrick. It seems like 
you um, a lot of people that have come on the podcast have mentioned how one action that they'll have years ago creates this ripple effect that ends up causing some chemical reaction later down the line with another ripple that they had made years ago. And so I feel like that story is a great example of that. Uh, unfortunately, though, our time has come to an end. After such a lovely and fun conversation, like I love these stories. They're so fantastic. And this is exactly what I was looking for. Um, it's, it is time for our final ceremonial ask. So I ask every guest on the podcast these three questions. Um, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So in the spirit of being new to venture, if you were to write a letter to your previous self right when you were starting a job in venture capital, yes. what would you write about? Yeah, that's a good question. I would write, well, I have kind of two answers. Do you want, like I could write a mean letter or a nice letter? <laughs> the mean letter would be about all the hidden things about venture capital that I did not understand, um, which might have given me pause about entering venture to begin with. Those things are very obvious, um, which we've talked about, but there are dynamics of venture that I think people don't realize when they first start, like the feedback loop of, you know, whether you're good at it is very, very long. Um, most people who do venture for too long, like over two or three years, don't really, can't really do anything else afterwards. This type of investing is very non-transferable to private equity, to hedge funds, to any other kind of operating job. So it really is statistically the last job that most people have. Um, and then lastly, you know, especially if you were an operator in a startup, this is, a, this is a very kind of, this is much more of a lone wolfy job. We have a partnership, of course, um, and we work together, but it's not like working in a startup together when you launch, a, when you're like staying up late at night with a, your team and you're launching a product together and you're like cracking champagne when you've launched, like there's not that. Each of us have our own portfolio companies, our own boards. We come together to coordinate, but then we split up for the rest of the week doing our own kind of thing. And those are dynamics that are not, immediately evident when you just look at people who do think oh wow that looks like such a cool job so it's it's not it turns out i really love all aspects of it but um but it's not obvious what those characteristics are when you first start i'm super thankful that i have a chance to have access to that information <laughs> now as i'm starting my career super helpful um the next question is to shout out a vc or another investor that you think's either been killing the game recently or has some unique takes or just someone who has been personally helpful for your growth or just a friend of yours? You know, I think someone who fulfills all three of those categories in my mind is Alfred Lin from Sequoia. And, and here's why Alfred, first of all, he works so, so hard. Secondly, he's so, so intelligent. There are lots of hardworking, intelligent people, but I think what differentiates Alfred from the very start is I'll never forget. He's just not afraid to take risks. Really early in our careers, when he was first starting at Sequoia and I first started at NEA, there was this like charity um, video that we had to make and everyone was doing crazy things and people were a little bit cautious. They didn't want to be doing something super crazy. So I think like Alfred was dressed like fully in like a jacket and nice slacks and he jumped into a swimming pool and like it, it was like kind of crazy. I mean, that's a silly example. Other examples, you know, I we went through a, a kind of a difficult period in our early firm's history. And Alfred, he didn't have to, but he really stuck his neck out for us. And I just have to admire that because 
people who who are really there for you when times are tough are your real friends. And he has always been that, I think, to everyone he's worked with. He is a rare bird in, in my estimation. That's amazing. Hopefully one day I can meet the legendary Alfred Lin, and as well as I can build relationships similar to that um, in my career, maybe in venture and beyond. And the last question is to shout out a startup or scale-up that you think has high potential or that you personally believe can change the world. Well, I still serve on the board of 23andMe, and I just think that is a spectacular company. Um, our understanding of our own genomes, both from an ancestry point of view and a health point of view, is really going to, I think, change the way everyone views the kind of their path of health through life. Um, and so I think gaining that knowledge as early as possible has all kinds of compounding positive effects through the rest of your life. And so that this is one of the companies that really established uh, personal uh, genomics as an industry and continues to lead it. Absolutely. It's such a cool product and such a great way to end the show. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really looking forward to just catching up and seeing all the amazing progress that you'll make in the coming weeks and months. Thank you very much for having me, Taiki. All right, Patrick, take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.